Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pa ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today on the Doc Sounds of Science podcast, we have star of the Fieldland Kiwi Diaries and conservation expert, Tim Raymakers. Tim has a wealth of experience handling rare species, navigating remote Fieldland terrain, and managing endangered species survival. It is not an easy job, and it's not always as fun as it sounds, but Tim's work stories are second to none, and the wins for him and his team will bring a tear to your eye. Kia ora, Tim. Thanks very much for coming on. Kia ora, Erika. Tihei moriora no kotarana ho. Ko Pentland Hills Taku Munga, Ko Braidburn Takuawa, Ko Tim Remakers Taku Ingoa. He kaimahi aho bota papa te fai kitiano. He kaitiaki kanoro koyora taku mahi. Norera tenakoto 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 katoa. Kia ora. Our last last episode was with Chris Dodd. You used to work with him, right? Uh, well, he replaced me as manager of the Shy Lake project, so uh, I work with him in the, uh, I sit about a metre away, <laughs> and, and we chat about the project a bit and, and so on, but uh, I haven't sort of directly worked with him heaps. Okay, and what's your job now? What did you move on to? Uh, I am what we call project lead for a couple of valleys in northern Fjordland, the Hollyford and the Cledo. So it's a little bit less easily defined than, than when I was running the Kiwi project. But uh, basically, I'm sort of point of contact and uh, admin chap for the predator control and species monitoring that we do in those kind of special places in Northern Fjordland. And what I'm doing at the moment is planning an aerial 1080 operation for the Hollyford. Fantastic. Now, I'm not hearing the Kiwi vowels that I'm used to. Whereabouts are you from? I hail from Edinburgh. I love Edinburgh, my favourite city in the world. Uh, And how did you get to become a a Fiordland Kiwi Ranger? So uh, many moons ago, more than I care to admit, I was studying a zoology degree back in Scotland and they had a a work placement programme where you could go and find find a work placement year. And I sort of had an inkling that it would be cool to go to New Zealand. I'd heard a little bit about some of the conservation work there and, you know, it was already famous as a place with good opportunities to do fun outdoor stuff, which was what I wanted to do. So I managed to get on this scheme and hopped on the doc website looking for opportunities and saw a volunteer opportunity to go and work as a Kiwi ranger at Moiho Kiwi Sanctuary up in the top of the Coromandel Peninsula. So the first thing you did was work with Kiwi? Yes. So, um, you know, there was mowing lawns and checking traps and things like that as well. But uh, but yeah, I because I was able to commit for a year it takes a while to sort of skill up to become a kiwi ranger but yeah that's where i cut my teeth in conservation and got some really good skills and got to know some good people and um yeah uh so yeah it was pretty much straight off the bat i got got to do that but really it was because i was fortunate to be in a position that i could do it for quite a long time in regards to volunteering so many people that i talk to start that way or look on the doc website and and there are lots of opportunities uh, and ways for listeners to volunteer it does take quite a lot of training and experience to to learn to handle kiwi you don't just start there do you yeah that's correct i think learning to handle kiwi or other native species is something that you probably shouldn't expect to jump straight into you might have to work your way up to that a little bit but there are lots of ways that people can get involved 
straight off the bat. So it takes an hour to learn to check traps, right? It might take you longer to get really good at stomping around the bush, but um, it doesn't take long to kind of pick up the, the basics of what you need to do, uh, whether that's with Doc or another outfit. Um, and then there's increasingly loads of other ways that people can contribute. There's there's lots of people who are looking through footage from trail cameras in the field or doing data entry or analysis. Lots of people have got really good kind of IT or media skills that they can bring to the party. And so, again, it obviously doesn't have to be with Doc. There's loads of other groups doing great work out there. So there's, there's tons of ways to get involved. And I think there's something for everybody and for all amounts of time. You know, I got to sort of go straight into Kiwi work because I was a lucky enough to be able to give it lots of time that's not achievable for tons of people but you know i'm also a member of a little local trapping group that takes about four days of my time a year which is probably pretty achievable for most folk awesome now you you mentioned that you were lucky can you think of a time when you just think i can't believe this is my job i'm the luckiest person in the world yeah, I think my, well, <laughs> lots of times, actually, the lots of times that I've been sitting on a mountaintop, um, having a cup of tea and looking around and thinking, wow, I can't believe that I get to do this. This is wonderful. Um, I think one time that really stood out to me was when I was, I was volunteering, actually. Um, I had had my first paid contract with Doc at that point, but I did a couple of weeks volunteering with the Kakapo Recovery Program on Whenua Hall, down off Rakiura. Uh, and my job was to hang out near a kakapo nest at night and basically make sure that everything sort of went to plan and that chick was staying healthy and getting fed as it should. And I was uh, had to go down to the nest when the mother was away so that I wouldn't be disturbing her. But um, at one point as I was sort of retreating, she kind of beat me to the punch and came back a little bit. And so I just sort of stood back and stood still and got my first ever view of a kakapo, which was just a pretty priceless moment. You know, this incredibly kind of vivid green and and just so different. And, it, you know, just very quiet, just creeping along. It was a very kind of, well, it felt like a very intimate moment to me. And yeah, I was just, that was just like, oh, I'm living the dream here. You know, that's, that's kind of where I wanted to be. And here I am doing it. Wow. Wow. And such a humbling moment, I imagine, just going, that's the thing we're, we're saving. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's any, any particular memorable moments in the field um, other than that, perhaps to do with Kiwi? Yeah, there's a, there's a, a couple that stick out. Um, there was one situation that I had at Shy Lake, which was quite unexpected and a little bit strange, where I was tracking this check card job there is to find out what happens to checks. Do they survive? Do they not? So they've got a little radio transmitter on and I was tracking this check and I, I found it in a place that I didn't really expect to find it outside of its its home territory. Uh, but as I was tracking it, I was getting a bit of interference on the little receiver that we use. And I thought, I think there's another bird around here somewhere. Um, and when I actually found it, I was pleased to see that it was safe and sound in a little hole under a log. But in there, there was some adults, but they weren't the parents of this Kiwi. Um, and it's actually quite a sad story. So these adults had had a chick of their own that had been killed by a stoat. And this little chick had obviously gone wandering off and sort of been, I don't know, adopted slash kidnapped by these adults who obviously had a real strong drive to be parenting something and had found this thing and started parenting it. Um, so it was a situation that was probably, I would 
speculate a bit unnatural but just something i just never considered might happen with kiwi you know it's something that can happen with other species but kiwi are really territorial and just those little insights into the the tiny little things that go on in their world that you wouldn't normally know about oh that's pretty special um i feel like you might have more well (laughs) another thing that's always a bit memorable is again at shy lake we were uh, changing the transmitter on an adult male kiwi which is something we do once a year we handle them as little as possible but um the transmitter has a finite battery life um so you go and give it a health check every year and give it a new transmitter uh and there we were um you sort of hold them kind of upside down on their lap and you've got the the um the legs kind of held up a little bit a bit like when you're changing a baby's nappy um <laughs> and suddenly i saw that uh the cloaca or bumhole was kind of pulsating a little bit and we thought oh no i know what this means and we tried to sort of get it like away from us without you know just slinging it away and just an absolute fountain of liquid poo came out and just coated both of us and all our gear we've got all these little intricate pieces of monitoring gear that then just had to be just like completely cleaned up and stuff i think we just had to sort of call that for the day and go back get everything under the tap at the hut um but for those who don't know, kiwi poo really stinks. It's sort of earthy, but really sharp and acrid at the same time. And the oh. smell just doesn't really come out. Like my notebook or that notebook still smells of it. And that was three years ago, I think. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those ones where you just have to stop and you just can't stop laughing, I think. I didn't know which way that story was going to go. And that was <laughs> brilliant. I feel like um, parents might find that one really relatable, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tim, what's been the most unexpected thing you've ever encountered in the field? Uh, I think the one of the things that um, it was just a little sort of side note to what I was doing. But once upon a time, I was on Anchor Island uh, working with Kakapo Recovery Program. And I was just out the front of the hut uh, having a cup of tea and looking at the um, sea and the hills and feeling pretty serene. And a tutuwai, a New Zealand robin, came up to say hi, which is a very common occurrence on Anchor Island because it's a pest-free island and there's birds everywhere and plenty of robins. I've never quite got to the bottom of whether there's thousands and thousands of robins or just one that follows you everywhere, but you can always see one. Anyway, this one came up and uh, there I was in my trusty crocs and I had uh, had a little scab on my ankle, I think. And he came up and he he eyed it with his beady eye. You know how they turn their head sideways a little bit and they they look at it and they're like, oh yeah. And um, he came in and he just gave it a little peck, and then he gave it another little peck. And I was like, oh, that's a bit sore, but you know, there's a robin. There's a nice little interactive moment. I'll just let him do that. And then he just kept going until it started to bleed, and they just pecked and pecked away at it. And he was just drinking the blood. So um, I discovered a vampire tutuai, which was. Um, it's not something I'd ever heard about before. Um, I actually got a little video, which I unfortunately I've since lost. Um, but yeah, that was, I, you know, you see nature docos uh, with, with oxpecker sitting on the back of a buffalo or something and pecking away and you hear about it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is it here, right here, happening to me with a robin. It was weird. I can safely say our native species are weird and wonderful. Now, do you have a, a conservation conversion fact, the kind of thing that you tell friends at barbecues to get conservation newbies hooked? 
um, Clinton Duffy in a re- recent episode told us about the Epaulette shark, which can walk on land, a shark that can walk on land. Do you have something like that, Tim? Oh, man, I need to look that one up. I haven't heard about that. Um, <laughs> so in terms of the kind of work that I've been involved with, I'm always a little bit blown away by how long some of these native birds live. So kiwi can live for up to 50 years, kakapo at least 60 years. But uh, my favorite random nature fact, which has nothing to do with anything I've worked on, I think, is if you take a sponge, an underwater sponge, um, which uh, many people will know, but not everyone realizes are actually animals, not plants or anything, and you force it through a sieve that separates it into all its little individual cells, those cells will survive and they will kind of aggregate back together and make a new sponge, a new functioning sponge, which I thought was just absolutely nuts. I'm showing my age here, but it always reminded me of there's a scene in the movie Terminator 2 where there's this bad guy kind of robot thing and he gets um, frozen and then shattered into a million pieces and then those pieces melt and they all go back together and he's he's back. He's the bad guy robot. Um, (laughs) As soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, it's just like that, but not evil. Amazing. Yeah, that's the the thing that you picture is like a, a horror movie with the bad guy coming back together. That's pretty cool about the sponge. I hope it doesn't hurt it. I don't know. Uh, you'd have to ask the sponge. I'm not I sure. have to ask the sponge. I'll go and do that. I, I um, talk to a lot of people who would love to work for Doc as a ranger and they want to know the main things to focus on upskilling at. We talked about that a bit before. What would you say we should be telling them? Should they be getting good at hills and mountains or adaptability or, I don't know, conservation values? What would you say is the most that they could focus on? All of the above, really. Um, A good keen attitude will go a long way. Um, You know, conservation is a pretty small world. The two degrees thing really applies. So um, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of people in conservation cut their teeth through volunteering. You get a little bit of skills and you get a little bit known. And just having someone who can say, oh, yeah, I worked with them. They were awesome. Um, They just wanted to get stuck in and kind of, yeah, make a positive difference and that'll go a long way, I think. So, yeah, just get out there and get into it, really. Um, get involved, do a bit of volunteering. I think that's a really great way to get into it. But, of course, it depends what you want to do. So if you want to be a field ranger, then getting involved in some trapping programs or something like that is a great way to start. But if you are your aptitude is a little bit more kind of IT-based or something, then there'll be ways to get involved that way. Tim, are there any instances where you had to use your backup plan's backup plan? So hopefully, I mean, hopefully that doesn't come up too, too often. We try and prepare well for our work, but um, something where we had to really uh, come up with a plan on a fly that springs to mind was, um, this was a few years ago now, I was out on Anchor Island working with the Kakapo Recovery Program, and we were doing health checks on Kakapo chicks at night. So I was camped out near the nest, which is always a cool experience, listening to the sounds of the night on a pest-free island. Um, uh, And often the sound of the night is a whole bunch of rain (laughs) falling on the tent. And that's what happened this time. So I'd I'd done a health check on this chick, and there's a little camera in the nest so you can kind of see what's going on. And we had a bit of a a weather bomb it was very wet season in general and it just rained and rained and rained and some of our cockbonus started flooding and you know that's just that's going to be curtains for the chick if you don't intervene so we had to we had to barrel down there just in the absolute sluicing rain and do an emergency extraction of this cockbow chick and take it back to the 
uh, field base on the island for for hand rearing at least temporarily and you sort of chuck a wee plastic egg in the nest and hope that the mum will <laughs> stick around and so there's somewhere to put that chick back and quite often that works actually they're really forgiving but yeah that was one of those things where you're like right kind of panic stations you've got to do something right now or it's too late speaking of really remote areas that's where you work do you have a a hack item or essential thing that you take with you when you're working in such remote places um it's a pretty uh bland and prosaic but the thing that i always use these days when i go out in the field is a bum bag that i've just got like on the front sitting on my tummy and it's just got my notebook and like maybe my head torch if i'm doing kiwi work you're looking into burrows and things all the time and uh, some receivers and like a little list of the channels for the kiwi or my some trapping gear if i'm doing that there's always something you've always got equipment stuff and yeah that that's my thing since i started using one i just uh, never leave home without it really I don't think you'll get any complaints about Bumbag Territory. I have one. I can see the digital team all are big fans of this kind of thing. Used to make fun of my mum for it, but now I've got one. So We've seen the light. Sure have. So in the course of your conservation career, there must have been a million different great places that you have worked in. What's the coolest place you've worked in? And can you tell me about why? Yeah, sure. There's, um, there's a lot of parts of Fjordland which... I just absolutely love and the scenery's incredible and Shire Lake's probably top of that tree. But for really the coolest place that I feel like I've worked in would be several pest-free islands that I worked on with the Kakapo program. Fenuaho, Anchor Island, and a couple of visits up to Hoturu in the Hauraki Gulf. And all of those places are just absolutely buzzing with life. They're all long-term pest-free islands and there's birds everywhere and there's other life, the sea life, and they're just so vibrant. And I also, you know, I lived there. We were there four weeks at a time and then we'd have two weeks off and that was kind of my home for years. And you just really get to know that island and that environment and connect with it and sort of grow with it a little, a little bit. But for me... Those pest-free islands, it's something that I wish every New Zealander could experience because it's a vision of what we're trying to achieve, what we once had everywhere across Aotearoa, and what it could be like again. And yeah, I think it's just, you know, people come to those islands and I've lost count of the number of people that have been within those islands who've really considered it a landmark experience in their life to get to go there and experience that. And yeah, that's what we're working towards. It is, and it's such a good point. I feel like if everyone in, in Aotearoa could go out and stand on a Little Barrier Island or stand somewhere and listen to the dawn chorus, it would just, everyone would be on board this predator-free goal. That's right. Since Tim had so many brilliant stories, we decided to split his episode into two. In part two, we delve into the work behind the Fiordland Kiwi Diaries miniseries. Tim tells us all about the Tokaweka Kiwi Monitoring Program, the rugged terrain, the gross yet fascinating breeding cycle of stoats, and the emotional roller coaster that the series captures. You will not want to miss it. In the meantime, you can watch Tim and the Fiordland Kiwi Diaries on our YouTube channel. If you haven't seen it yet, here is a little taster. See you next time. Kiwi can be incredibly sneaky and nimble. They often look like kind of a, a bumbling animal, but they can live in the harshest, most rugged environments. 
It's hard not to choose favourites. I really like filibuster and fortuna. They're almost always the first to nest for the season. So there's a state in the area that doesn't bode well for the chick survival. Furelin is a huge wilderness, but most of it doesn't have any protection or predator control happening in it. It's just a little bit further up. When you can't find a chick, it is a concern. Often it's really only ended one way. There's an opportunity to ramp up the protection that we're giving to Tokoeka and Fjordland. And that's why we're here and that's what my job's about. So the real acid test will be how many of those chicks survive. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Erica Wilkinson, and this has been the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can stream it off our website, doc.govt.nz. This show is produced by Jane Ramage with editing by Lucy Hollyoak. If you enjoyed this episode, show us some love with a five-star rating.